It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, and welcome to a Slate Spoiler Special podcast on A Star is Born, Bradley Cooper's new, are we calling it a remake, a reboot, a revisitation? A new installment of a franchise. Yeah, even, uh, yeah, can we even think of it as some sort of like (laughs) nine decade long franchise? So this is the fourth movie entitled A Star is Born to exist Mm -hmm. in Hollywood history. Uh, And you could also throw into that mix if you wanted to a 1932 movie called What Price Hollywood that vaguely inspired the series. We can get into that. Um, But yeah, I I was trying to grapple in my review today at what kind of intellectual property A Star is Born is at this point. I mean, really, it's a myth. I mean, you can't exactly call this a remake of the last movie, which was in 1976, right? The Barbra Streisand version. Right. No, it's been over 40 years. And every time the story is told, even though it always has this common element of an ascending female star and a descending male star who's in love with her, many of the other elements change and Really, totally different from film to film. Yeah. yeah, you can't really regard these things as, I mean, intellectual property is maybe the best way to think of it. Like, you need sure. to get rights to it, but, you know, you don't really owe anything think to Think of it property. as a fairy tale. And then it's remade over and over, like, you know, they make Cinderella many times. You're right, eternally regenerating. So, and I should mention that I'm sitting here talking to Rachel Syme. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Dana. Uh, you are a freelance writer. You write for The New Yorker, The New Republic. You just wrote a big profile of Lady Gaga for The New York Times Magazine, which yeah. we will get into, no doubt. And um, and yeah, I've been waiting to talk with you about this movie ever since we both saw it separately. So I'm very excited. You and excitedly texted late at night about how we felt. Yeah, basically, yeah. We've been sort of swooning over this movie for the past month or so. And yeah. so this is our first chance to really lay down our cards and talk about it. Yeah, okay, so it. before we get into it, mm-hmm. as if it wasn't sort of obvious from our swoony tone, what did you think overall and would you send people to the movie? Oh, I would send you twice. I loved this movie. It's the kind of movie that actually does demand to be seen twice, and I saw mm-hmm. it twice before writing on it because it's a big movie, right? I mean, it's a musical. It's got a lot of moving parts. It's two hours and 15 minutes long. Yes. It's epic in scale. It has a real old school, old Hollywood, let's put on a show musical theater aspect to it that I think stands up to multiple viewings. And another important thing to know about it, I think, going in, which is has been so hyped in the, the premiere buzz about it that everybody probably already knows this, but it's Bradley Cooper's directorial debut, his yeah. very first movie that he made himself. So in that sense, the star that's being born in some ways is Bradley Cooper, the director, right? I mean, given the fact that sure. the leading lady, the diva at the center, we already knew was a star going in. Yeah, no, I mean, who knew that Bradley Cooper knew how to light a scene, but he really does know. 
Um, and he also co-wrote the script with uh, two other writers, and he stars in it as well. So it is a, a triple threat when it comes to Bradley Cooper. Let's talk about the history of this particular property for yeah. a second. This iteration of A Star is Born, which has been kicking around in development hell for how long? I mean... God, 20 years. I've heard there was a version at one point with Will Smith and Whitney Houston. That's how long ago, sometime in the 90s, it was being batted around. And then it was Will Smith and Jennifer Lopez. And then it was Clint Eastwood was going to direct it. And he was going to, uh, the ingenue was going to be played by Beyonce, which I'm sad we never got to see. Um, and then at some point, uh, yeah, Russell Crowe maybe came into the picture and fell out. And then Bradley Cooper came in as the star and told Clint he wasn't ready to do it. And then at some point he took over as the director, at which uh, point Lady Gaga enters the story. So it's a really long, even just this latest remake or whatever we're calling it, was there was a long road to get to this point. Right. And it seems like once it fell into Bradley Cooper's hands and Lady Gaga became attached, the project also underwent a big rewrite and yeah it took three years change. or something it was all it was a really long process to get the movie to screens and in part that i think was because he was incorporating autobiographical elements from his life lady gaga's life yeah. they were writing songs together right yeah. they were sort of engineering the project in a collaborative way so yeah. it doesn't feel in in the case of either one of them like it's something that they sort of signed on to at a late date that had been defined and shaped by someone else no i think she was um very influential in how the movie turned out so, okay, let's get into the specifics of this story and sure. who the characters are in this particular version. Uh, anybody who knows the past Star is Borns know that there have been both actors and singers who were the stars being born, right? Uh, in, mm -hmm. the, in the original Janet Gaynor version from 1937. She's an actress. It's a young actress. And, uh, and no music, music isn't a big all. part of that movie at all, right? Um, then, of course, in the Judy Garland version in 1954, directed by George Cukor, uh, well, I guess you could say she's an actress and a singer. And, yeah, you know, she's all kind of a performer, just vaudevillian like Judy Garland. at the beginning and then be a jazz singer who has a little jazz band that she performs with at the Coconut Grove. And then she becomes... A studio girl actress. But she's married to an actor. So there you've got a right. mixed media. You right. Know, it's a singing, acting, mixed media. And then, as we know, the Barbara Streisand version from 1976 is about a, a singer and um, a, pop, a rock singer, really, a rock and roll, sort of Jim Morrison-y, swaggering, uh, tight pants rock guy played by Chris Christopherson. And Barbara Streisand is sort of a rock and roll singer, kind of a Barbara Streisand balladeer. Um, yeah, the genre of music that she invents yeah. is completely implausible for that period in history. Absolutely. But there's something sort of great about the idea that she would be doing her strange, almost post-vaudevillian Barbara Streisand Yeah, and I, I know we want to talk about this version, but I just want to mention that the 1970s version is is has my favorite costumes because they came directly from Barbara Streisand's closet. I did not know the that. The screen credit says costumes from Miss Streisand's closet. <laughs> um, she and, and there's a lot of ponchos in like avocado green and sort of a pumpkin orange. It's very 70s. It's amazing. Well, that actually is, that leads us in a way into something yeah. about this version, which is, I mean, it struck me throughout that the production design and the mm -hmm. look and the sort of grain of this movie, almost the, the cinematic grain of the film is very 70s. There's something about this movie, while it's set in the present day, that seems to be trying to borrow from some of that avocado poncho, warm color feeling of the yeah, 70s. Yeah, and they go to the desert too, which uh, Chris Christopherson and, and Barbara Streisand do in the 1970s version. Although in that version, they spend a long montage just riding horses in the desert and, and living in a yurt. Um, but in this version, they don't do that. They ride a motorcycle through Arizona, and that's about it. But I think you're right. It borrows, a, it has a 70s kind of uh, loose 
jangly feel and an emphasis on sort of uh, this, I don't know, a kind of ruggedness of the male actor. Yeah. Uh, that feels a little, you know, her suit in the very 70s. And also she early on, I think, has a, the, the vibe of a 70s songstress in a way that she loses over the course of the movie yeah, as she, she gets kinda, modeled into a pop star. She but she has Carol King's tapestry Or Lara Nero or something. Yeah, she sort of starts out as a, as a, as a, a piano um yeah, like Carol King is a close analog, so it makes sense that she has that on her wall. Right. So, yeah. so just to get us into the sure. story, we've the very first thing we see is is Cooper's character Jackson Maine, mm-hmm. been changed from Norman Maine from the last two right. movies, I guess, because Norman is just not a believable romantic lead. Yeah. First and doesn't name Jackson Maine just sound like a country rock star? Yeah, Jackson Maine is a fantastic name for that yeah. character. And so the kind of rocker that yeah. he is 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 something that we sort of have to suspend our disbelief to imagine that he would still be this big a hit in our present day because there's something sort of maybe Neil Young-like. Well, he, yeah, I mean, Neil Young's band is backing him up in the movie. Did you know that? I um, thought it was... Oh, no, no, sorry, Willie Nelson's band. Willie Nelson's son's band, But isn't th- it? that is the band that backs up Neil Young. The, the Lucas Nelson yes. band? Yes, Oh, ah, okay. It's Willie Nelson's son, but they're Neil Young's band. That ah, makes okay. sense. okay, okay. So it's a little bit Willie Nelson and a little Neil Young. I actually think those are like the perfect, if you combine them together and maybe added like a dash of um, sort of like Sturgill Simpson or like a modern day kind of country rocker that's popular that might be the closest yeah with maybe a hint of something that that neither young nor nelson have which is you know um this this hard partying danger side you know there's there's a little bit of a self-destructive there's a sense of some yeah 60s rocker on a on a downward spiral janice joplin or something like that is thrown into the mix well when we meet him going back to the plot he's on he's he's sort of mid-binge because we see him do a show he's hard rocking and then he gets into his private car after the show and he immediately starts uh drinking from a bottle of bourbon and quickly finishes that and we sort of get the sense right away that he has drinking issues to put it lightly and immediately asks his driver to take him to the nearest watering hole so he can continue drinking right and that of course provides him the opportunity for his meet cute meet fabulous with lady gaga who turns out to be in this is a drag bar or at least a bar that's holding a night of it's a drag, drag bar, and that's that's something I like that they updated. Um, you know, I think uh, Chris Christopherson discovers Streisand in a sort of doo-wop club, underground sort of sweaty nightclub, and um, in the Judy Garland version, she's discovered at the Ambassador Hotel. So I think Every Star is Born sort of sets this discovery scene in what feels like the most vital underground nightlife scene of the era, and so I think it was actually a really smart decision that they set it in the world of drag. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so the, she gives there a, a performance um, that impresses Bradley Cooper with his with her just stagecraft at, with absolutely minimal resources, right? Yeah, she's, she's got, singing La Vie en Rose. She's singing Edith Piaf's La Vie en Rose with sort of drugstore roses stuck in her bra to pull out and, and dangle at, at uh, the listeners. And she turns it into this big showstopper sort of mm-hmm. camp routine where she's sprawled out full length on the bar singing the song and she's wowing everyone in the room uh, particularly Bradley Cooper who doesn't know exactly what he's doing in yeah he's transfixed by her and I think we also get the sense that you know he's this supposed to be this tough guy uh, sort of shambling country reserved drinker drinker but when he gets in like sort of drag scene he's pretty accepting right away he's just like is this a drag bar and then he's really into it and he's talking to the drag queens he's having a great time so we get the sense that Jackson Maine is sort of a, an open-minded person who's just looking for talent wherever he can find it and he's really interested in artists and creativity and so when he sees her do this performance something sort of lights up in him and she splays out on the bar and holds a white rose over her head as she's singing and she has these little 
Piafian eyebrows that she's made out of electrical tape. And he just, they stare at each other and there's that moment where their eyes lock and you know that there's some kind of friction, some creative frisson going on between them. Yeah, and that's something that's established really early and really successfully in the movie, I think, particularly in the sequence that follows this meeting in the drag bar when the two of them Mm -hmm. find them themselves on, I guess, what you'd call their first date. It's essentially going out for a quiet drink, which almost immediately turns into a very unquiet adventure. He he takes her to a second location from the drag bar to an uh, after-hours cop bar that he frequents. And um, they get into an altercation with a police officer pretty quickly. I have to mention a little moment here that I know you love, too, and that I think I would have to say is the movie the movie's moment that it sort of had me at hello, which is the smile that she gives unexpectedly after punching a cop in the face at the cop bar because she perceives him as invading the space of of Jackson Maine, who's just trying to be alone and have some quiet time with her. Right. He's bothering him for a photo. This this random fan is bothering Jackson for a photo and she punches him in the face and she gives this very proud sort of grin and she's laughing as he takes her out of the bar and the scene cuts away really quickly but there's a moment of just triumph in it that I think tells you everything you need to know about Allie which is what her character is named in this version in past versions the the ingenue has been called Esther um, and then that name is changed by the studios to Vicky so there's all different names for this character but in this version she's called Allie and it tells you everything you need to know and I think you know, there's two defining moments in that first date scene. She, It's the punch moment and then also the moment where she tells him why um, her career has stalled out as a singer because he pushes her. He says, you're amazing. Why are you not working in the industry? And she says, I tried, um, but nobody liked the way I looked. I found a lot of pushback being myself because I have too big of a nose. She just comes out and says that. And there's this moment that I would say is just extremely sort of sensual and uh, charged where he reaches out and runs his hand down the length of her face and just says that he loves her nose. And there's something about that that tells you everything you need to know about their relationship. Yeah. And from there, the night, even though it is a whirlwind romance that you might say is in the Hollywood mode, is completely believable, right? I mean, whatever happens in between that and the morning when he drops her back off at her house, we don't see it all. In fact, like a lot of important things in this movie, their night together is pretty much ellipsed. But we know from the little glimpses we see that smile in the cop bar after the punch, Mm -hmm. them subsequently going to a supermarket where he buys her frozen peas to tape to her hand so that it can recover from the punch to play piano. And then this incredible moment in the parking lot where she essentially workshops her new song with him. And uh, and we hear a little scrap of this song, The Shallow, that is now the, the hit single, right? Yeah. The release, the first yeah, sing- advanced release. She sings a, a little bit of shallow acapella and some of it she's just um, coming up with impromptu inspired by having met him. And I think that this scene is really amazing because one of the things that uh, Coop- Bradley Cooper did as a director that really surprised me was he gave that first date scene, if that's what we're calling it, a ton of space. I mean, it takes up maybe the first 40 minutes of the movie. It's slow. There's a lot of air in it. And he just lets the camera sit with the two of them, especially with with uh, Lady Gaga, and, and lets her be quiet, lets her react, lets her sort of be curious and just have wide eyes. And there's something that I really love about that because it's a mode we have not seen her in before. Right. I mean, the Lady Gaga that you see in the first half of this movie is is as naked as I've ever seen her. She's, you know, if she does have makeup, it's beautifully engineered to make mm-hmm. her look completely makeupless. And there's something extra naked about the face of someone that you're used to always seeing as, you know, presented and as kind of artificialized and yeah. and as made into a different characters and masks as Lady Gaga. So, um, so that beginning of the movie, you do have this sense of almost invading her privacy or something. It's an extremely open and transparent performance, which I think was maybe to me the biggest 
treat of this movie, the biggest, as a non-watcher of American Horror Story, the biggest surprise was just how well Lady Gaga could act. I mean, the most I was hoping for, honestly, was she'll be a sensational singer, she'll have tons of charisma, and she will, you know, deliver her lines convincingly. And the idea that she was actually able to create an extremely vivid and present character throughout this movie is well, I, I'm still kind of not quite getting it like how I know, she was just it was, carrying that know, talent the, inside all this time the first I mean I knew I was writing about um, her before I saw the film for the first time and so I think when I saw the film for the first time I wept really openly afterwards I was a wreck I was you know gross I was snotty and part of it is because the ending of this movie which we will get to because this is a spoiler special is incredibly sad but I think part of it was I was just crying with relief that she was so good because <laughs> I, you know, I didn't know what to expect. I think when um, musicians act, it can go every which way. I mean, as we know, Barbara Streisand was a phenomenal actress. Cher is a phenomenal actress, um, but it can also go the other way. And so I didn't know what to expect. And I was so surprised and so pleasantly shocked, actually, by how great she is in this movie, just as an actress, just just on the pure level of being able to react and say so much without saying anything. Yeah, and appear to be really thinking. You know, yeah. there's really a lot going on behind her eyes and behind her even vocal phrasing and things like that in this yeah. movie. Well, this has the thing that a great showbiz musical can do, which the 1954 Star is Born also does really, really well, which is advance its story through the songs without mm-hmm. the songs being, you know, interdiegetic. They're not Oklahoma songs where the, the characters burst into song ever, right? They all take place in the context of some sort of stage performance. Right. Because There's the never anyone perform. bursting into song that's not supposed to be singing in that moment. But at the same time, every one of the musical numbers, and the second time I really was noting it down and seeing that it's true across the board for each one, every musical number advances something important about the character or yeah. the story and often contains, without being Mickey Mouse about it, contains thematic material that has to do with the themes of the movie. Well, and I mean, you know, as as cheesy as it is, you know, how they say like Sex in the City, they're like, oh, the character, the New York is the fifth person in Sex in the City. I think the music is sort of the third lead in this film because I think it tells it, you know, it changes and it has an arc over the course of the film. I mean, we can start talking about that first big concert scene because we're coming up to it. But her first musical forays are very rock country tinged and much more like what we've heard from Jackson Maine. She's singing in his style, though she has her own kind of Carol King-ish piano um, chanteuse quality. But, she, you know, her music moves into a different mode about halfway through the film when she becomes a pop star. Um, and, you know, I think the music tells its own story. And I think when you listen to the soundtrack, you're going to hear the shifts that happen just purely through the music, too. Yeah, to the, to the extent yeah. that if you knew the basic outlines of the plot, which most people familiar with some Hollywood version of this do, you could hear the story through the songs. All right, so before we get to her transformation sure. into a pop star, let's talk about that first big musical scene. It's not the first time you hear one of them play a number because the whole movie opens on Jackson Maine playing a solo right. as, Rocking at a stadium, or kind yeah. of a rock stadium show. But you only hear a fragment of that and the first really set piece, the first big number, yeah. is the moment that he debuts The Shallow, the song that she sang him a scrap of that night in the parking lot yeah. at a big stadium show that he's flown her out to with her friend. As right. A kind of and romantic he, he said, you know, the last the first time they met each other, he said, I want you to come to my gig. And she has a day job at this point as a waitress. And she's like, oh, I don't know. This is weird. This is a famous person. I've tried to make it for so long. It's so strange that he's even noticing me. Do I trust this? And um, so Jackson has his driver follow her around all day until she finally relents and says, "Okay, I'll come to the show. And it turns out that it's 
extremely fabulous what she's gotten into because the driver drives her to a private plane, her and her friend who um, works with her at the restaurant and then... Played by Anthony Ramos. Yes, yes, from Handsome. And, um, you know, they they get on this private plane. She's living this life of excess in this plane and they're popping champagne and thinking about what it would be like to be famous, which, you know, I think is so funny when you think of it in the context of somebody who is globally famous already and she's sort of acting out what it must have been like when she was first getting into that mode where she has private flights everywhere and everything and gets to this concert and someone takes them through the backstage. And it's one of the, I mean, honestly, I think we should talk about the merits of this film as a concert film because it's one of the best like sort of pulsating depictions of what it's like to be backstage at a rock show Mm -hmm. or on stage yeah because it's so like you hear the bass before you see anything and it's kind of like you know whoever did the sound mixing did a really good job because they've sort of turned it into that where it sort of matches your heartbeat makes your whole chest thump as it's getting louder and louder and she's getting closer and closer to the stage and like by the time she even sees him or she's backstage like my adrenaline was really going Right. Before you ever know she's going to yeah. be invited on stage, just the sense of, you know, being whisked up into this strange new world is yeah. very evident. But then the moment that he calls her on stage and she joins him and he's he's already turned this song that for all we know, they just sang a couple times in a parking lot. He's now arranged it and set it to music and sort of is performing it as a duet waiting for her to come out. And it's just such a thrilling moment. I mean, you have to be a musical person. Maybe if you're not a musical person, this is too corny for you. But there's an incredible thrill in the moment when she comes out. Yeah, she hesitates for a little. It's like, I'm not going to go on stage in front of these thousands of people. Are you kidding? And then she just sort of moves her shoulders back and somehow finds the gumption and just goes out there. And that's the moment from if you were one of the, you know, 20 million people who viewed the Star is Born trailer, that's that cathartic moment in the trailer and her voice just opens up and she sort of does this vocalese. And it, I mean, that's the Star is Born moment for her, really, because it's her, you know, in this version, because it's set now, that video then goes viral on YouTube of the two of them singing. And it's the beginning beginning of her career um, and her love story with him. So it's this really amazing sort of moment of release. And that's one of those moments that depends entirely on the quality of the song, right? I mean, the problem with movies about great artists is that it's very hard to make the fake great art they're supposed to make and actually convince your audience that it's going to do to people what stars do to people. But, you know, because Lady Gaga, in part because she is a star and she is creating this material specifically for this character, it really does deliver that kind of punch. And not I wouldn't say every song in the soundtrack has that degree of power, although there are others I love just as much, if not more. Um, but yeah, I love the squirt of this film. I mean, again, it's one of these things where the songs didn't have to be as good as they are for the movie to work, but they're phenomenal. I mean, this is, I think it'll be one of, you know, many people's favorite Lady Gaga records, in addition to being the score for A Star is Born. They're just really great songs. And it's it's going to be a record that contains a lot of different styles, necessarily, yeah. because it's about the whole scope of this career. Or, or it's actually, I was trying to figure out how much time this movie takes place during, and it seems like it's maybe two years at the most or mm-hmm. something. Like, mm-hmm. their, their puppy grows up to be a dog, so you know right. it's at least a year. That's Bradley Cooper's actual dog. Oh, it is? Yeah, did you oh know? Oh my God, I how found that adorable. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a very Spoiler, there's the an amazingly cute golden doodle in this movie. Yeah, if you if you can't take rolling around in autumn leaves with a golden doodle and Bradley Cooper, this is not the movie for you. Um, so so that whole whirlwind romance part of the movie, as mm-hmm. you say, takes up maybe the first 40 to 50 minutes or so. But then we've still got more than an hour of movie to go. Right, yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh, and we all know where the story is going. So explain to me the miracle by which it didn't seem maudlin and sort of here we're checking off the stations of the cross of this familiar story of decline that we all already know. 
Yeah, I mean, again, if you have never seen A Star is Born, in all previous versions, the Norman or the Jackson character who has come in as an addict continues to decline as his, you know, uh, new beloved's career starts to take off. And, you know, there are several uh, classic beats in this story, one where he embarrasses her in some very public way at an award show, and then one where, um, you know, and we'll get to it at the end, but one where he doesn't survive the film. And I knew those things were coming. But again, you said without being maudlin, somehow this film made those those beats feel very surprising to me and very earned. And I think it's because in this uh, period of the film where they're falling in love, it feels so authentic to me. I mean, you know, after this big concert, they take off together. She decides to go on the road with him. She, you know, gets a blessing from her dad, who is played by Andrew Dice Clay in this movie and who I actually think is super well cast as her, um, you know, he wanted to be famous too. So there's all this yearning and longing in their family. And, you know, her dad says, go, go. She goes on the road with Jackson and they start to perform together. And there's a montage. You love a good montage where it just shows them on stage for what we can assume is many months, just making music together, collaborating, falling in love. And he's drunk a lot of the time after shows, but she's taking care of him. And I think there's this moment where I realize their relationship is is a really sort of well-defined one when, you know, the first time they're ever going to sleep together, he passes out drunk before they can um, get in bed together. And instead of leaving or being sort of taken aback by this, she just stays. She just sleeps in the bed and in the morning um, they get together. But there is this sense of acceptance and love and care that she brings to a person who's obviously very troubled. Um, you know, he's struggling too, not just with alcoholism, but in this version, I think very smartly, uh, Bradley has given him a medical condition that's really troubling him, which is this uh, ever-growing tinnitus that's making him slowly deaf. So he's struggling with um, his own obsolescence uh, as a aging artist, but just, you know, as a healthy person. And I think that's, you know, something something that imbues it with a lot of pathos. Yeah. Well, that's something that's gotten across very, very subtly with just soundtrack mixes, basically. And that, that very first moment that you see him enter out on stage, first shot of the movie to, to play a concert, the boom of the bass is accompanied by this shrill, droning sound of the tinnitus, you know, which becomes throughout the movie almost this sign that you're inside his head and you're feeling what he's feeling. And in some of the later scenes where you're inside his head when he's really messed up on alcohol and drugs, that tinnitus becomes... You know, it's like a trigger by that point. Like, we know things are not okay in Jack's head. Yeah, and, you know, there's, you know, a sense that obviously this character in various versions is very indulgent and, you know, running around drunk and completely terrorizing this woman he's with. But in this version, I mean, it's very clear that he cares for her, too, and he looks out for her, and he's struggling with so many demons. I mean, we find out. I mean, I would say this version has the best sketched out uh version of that Jackson character. I mean, in past, you know, you don't know that much about their past. You don't know why they're sad. You just know that they're drunks. In this version, we learn that his dad was also a drinker. He gets a brother played by the great Sam Elliott, who um, brings up a lot of these these uh, psychological issues throughout the film. We learn that he tried to kill himself when he was only 12 years old. We learn all these things about his past that then make it feel more sensical when he does something like take off his boot and smash a pill some kind of opiate so that he can snort it before the show. I mean, a scene I love and I hope we have many gifs of to use online. But, <laughs> um, you know, it, it it doesn't feel like why is this guy destroying himself? You see all of the darkness. 
Well, and you also see, and again, this is not signposted and, and flagged really obviously, but you see the darkness of her enabling as well, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and the stage of their relationship before it starts to come between them that he drinks, where it's simply a fact of his character that she's always either having to ignore or minimize or cover up for. Yeah, she covers for him because she, you know, she's she's in love. And, you know, her career starts to take off. And I think that, that you know, the movie has three parts. The first part is this, like you said, whirlwind romance. It's the honeymoon period where they meet and they're on the road. And um, at some point he convinces her to sing a solo song that she has written an original composition that's one of my favorite songs in the movie that i think it's called always remember us this way but they they talk about it as a song called arizona sky and um it's a song she sings as an encore to the whole show by herself and in doing that and a very influential manager comes up to her after the show and says you have something really special here you on your own not just with jackson and i'd love to manage you and take your career to the next level and that's when i think the second act of the movie really begins and her own journey starts to sort of take off right and it's the first time something happens between them and this again is really beautifully played but that is kind of an act of aggression and violence but that still takes place in, in a playful mode albeit Mm -hmm. a sinisterly playful mode when he smashes that pastry into her face backstage right after he learns about the fact that she's going to get this record deal. right she says i'm going to have this big record deal this big manager and he smashes a cupcake on her face and she says like you jealous prick or something and then she says you want to play and he she smashes a cake back on his face and you realize they're really playful and they're like two kids and it's one of the reasons that they're drawn together but also he is really jealous i mean there's that it's a it's a crazy moment when he chooses to do that. That's his reaction to her getting the big break of her life. Yeah, it's a really beautiful choice, that little bit of business. I don't know where it came from, but then also the way it gets echoed later on when they get married shortly yeah. later, right? And they do the classic stuffing cake in each yeah. other's faces. But now it has this sinister overtone from what happened before. Right. So previous to the marriage, just quickly in the second act, she becomes a pop star. And I think it's really important to note that the pop star that Allie becomes is not Lady Gaga in the context of the film. I think a lot of people will see that there's a meta element to it, and there is. I mean, it's a commentary on pop versus rock and Lady Gaga as a pop star as the person playing it obviously is a big part of the narrative. But Allie is much more, I don't know, she's got orange hair and she's in sparkles and um, her sound is maybe a little bit more dancehall or, you know, she it's it's. I don't know how to put it. She sings this song about texting and butts that I actually really love. She has another song that um, I got to hear that is on the soundtrack that's pretty phenomenal called Hair, Body, Face that I love that's going to be such a jam at the club. But it's a different kind of, I mean, she's she's making dance jams. Right. And, and she's, do, but she's doing it, I think, authentically. That's the thing. One thing I really loved about this version is that Allie has agency in her own artistic development. She seems to really like the music she's making. You know, it's different than what she would have done with Jackson, but it's her own choice to go to this stratospheric pop level of fame. Right. So she's not, I would say, of the stars borns that have existed, this is the least Svengali-like in the relationship she has. Well, certainly with Jackson, who I wouldn't really say is a Svengali at all. Like He's a pretty legit collaborator. Mm -hmm. But this manager who takes her up and tells her, you know, you need backup dancers and you need to change your hair color. And he does in some ways mold her into a pop star. Uh, something that, that we get the sense that Jackson Maine is somewhat disappointed about and thinks that it's a, a waste of her authentic talent. But I don't think the movie itself draws that inauthentic versus authentic line in the same bold way that he does. Yeah, and I think she's really proud of what she's done. I mean, she trusts herself. I mean, she has this manager who's given her advice, but he says, I want to change your hair color. And she goes, I'm not going to be blonde, which... um 
I think when I spoke to him on the phone, Bradley told me it was a meta joke about Gaga being a very famous blonde. But, you know, I think, you know, she has some say in her own artistic development and she's singing um, commercial music, but she is also getting to be more and more famous and have more and more opportunities because of it. And that's really exciting to her. I mean, she performs on Saturday Night Live. She has big arena concerts. I mean, she has gotten to a level of fame that even Jackson hasn't experienced because of these this, these songs she's singing. So I think she, you know, we're not supposed to read it as, oh, she's just being molded and she has no control. No, no, just the opposite. I would, yeah. I would say less so. I mean, a big part of Vicki Lester's transformation in the Judy Garland movie, right, is that she's kind of panicking at the fact that she's becoming putty. Someone in the literally gives her her name studio heads. At, a, at, a, right. at a ticket counter. You know, the studio is like, you're now Vicki Lester. And she's like, OK. And Allie not only doesn't change her name, she's a one namer. She's like Cher. She just performs under a single name. So that's the extent to which, you know, she owns her her original uh, appellation. Yeah. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So now let's get to the much harsher second act yeah. of the movie, which essentially happens after she gets the record deal, the Grammy nomination, you know, after the uh, the dynamic of some jealousy and resentment between them has started to arise. Yeah. Well, it starts to unravel. Uh, she gets more and more famous. He keeps drinking himself into near oblivion. And it comes to a head when she is nominated for three Grammys, and this is the greatest moment of her life, and she's in a beautiful gold dress, and she wins the award for Best New Artist, I believe it is. Um, Halsey presents her with the award, and she goes on stage. She's giving a speech, and Jackson's at the Grammys, too. He was just on stage himself, but he was in a kind of diminished role. What happened was he was supposed to sing for this Roy Arbison tribute and he was supposed to sing and then at the last minute they switched out um, him out for a younger cooler more relevant singer and he's just playing the guitar and not a front man at all and because of this he gets rip roaring wasted because he can't handle that's when he snorts the, uh, the yeah, cowboy boot cocaine just, or whatever you know right? he, he's, he feels like god I'm totally irrelevant and just gets blackout and so during her win He follows her on stage, um, sits there, keeps asking from the sideline, did you win? Did you win? It's this devastating moment. And then, of course, Dana. It's so hard to watch. I mean, listen, I've seen every version of Star is Born, and Norman slash Jackson always ruins Esther slash Allie's big moment at a very public place. You know, in the Judy Garland version, uh, James Mason ruins her Academy Award win. And it's embarrassing, but it's not devastating the way that this is. So I'll let you go through it because I can almost not even talk about it. I know, I know. Okay, well, as long as we're spoiling, yeah, Yeah. I think we have to spoil the most humiliating moment for his character, which which is really devastating, but again, is such an illustrative moment about their relationship Mm -hmm. and where it's at, which is that as he rambles up onto the stage next to her, which is something James Mason's Norman Maine does as well, and sort of starts to talk over her speech in a garbled way and generally embarrass her, the audience is sort of tittering nervously, but she tries to pass it off as, I think she says, we're having fun tonight and We're having sort of fun and I love this man. And, right. To act know. as if he's just sort of, you know, um, tossed off a few in a yeah. merry celebration of, of her win. 
And uh, and then as she's standing there, he starts to piss himself. Yeah, he starts to pee down his own leg. And it's not played for comedy, people. It is really tragic. And, and is, you become aware of it in exactly the same and everyone time in the as audience the audience, goes, right? Because ah! it's in a long shot. And immediately, and I think this is one of the sort of most affecting moments in the room, you don't stay with that scene long enough. You know that it's happening enough to be horrified and immediately goes to this clattering sort of pushing Bradley Cooper through a hallway. And oh, wait, Dice but don't players. forget the incredible moment where she takes her gold gown, with the, which has this huge flouncy skirt, and uses it to cover up Stain yeah. And sort oh of gosh, her couture gown. She, her, you know, her immediate instinct is like, I've got. I got to protect him. Yeah. And anyways, he's like thrust into the shower by Andrew Dice Clay, and he's crying, and Gaga's crying, and and you know she's going. She just wants him to be okay. I mean, I think there's this moment where it could be played off as I'm so angry at you, I'm so upset that you did this, you completely embarrassed me in front of the nation, right? But instead, she's just desperate to know if he's going to be okay. Um, and just wants to make sure that he sobers up and he's all right. And she keeps stroking his hair and saying it's fine. And that's, of course, the moment when he goes to rehab. And that's one of the other moments where there's a big ellipsis. It's something I haven't really talked about much yet with mm-hmm. you. But so many key, key moments in this movie are just not seen. And uh, and I find it really effective because given that we do know the story, our mind can fill out a lot of the contours of what we don't see. Yeah. And, and think, uh, there's yeah. no big conversation where he breaks down and she says, you've got to go to rehab, honey. And they, you know, look up the rehab place online or something. He's just there. We just cut to him immediately right. at the place. And we know that this version exists in a world where social media exists because their video goes viral on YouTube when they're singing together. But one thing that I think is pretty um, wonderfully and delicately done is that there's not a lot of talk about how publicly embarrassing this must have been for them. I mean, it must have been a huge news-dominating bonanza. I mean, it's crazy that that happened. And we learn later from the manager that it was it, it almost ruined her career. We don't know, though, what that looks like. We don't know what the headlines were. We don't know how embarrassed she was. We kind of just skip all that to him in rehab and her feeling a little disconnected from him, but longing still for him to come home. And she's doubled down her commitment to him. And I think that ellipsis is really effective because you can kind of fill in what you think happened in those ensuing months. Yeah, there could be a different movie. And one could argue that they would want to see that movie where you stay with her while he's in rehab and see what happens to her career and her management and so forth. But insofar as this movie is really, really focused on the relationship, I think it just it wants to get to that place where they're trying to be together again. Yeah. So after he's in rehab, we're finally getting to the the final act of the film, which even if you know you know, what happens at the end of A Star is Born, or you know, you know, as in Titanic, the ship will sink, it does still hit you in this version, which is, you know, he's he's in rehab, she goes to visit him, she tells him she still wants him to come home, and she's still committed to the relationship, but it seems like something shift. He apologizes to her, he says he's so embarrassed, and I think he he's starting, and he's starting to talk to his therapists about how his youth and how he once tried to commit suicide when he was young and sort of reliving all of this trauma from his background and starting to really be present in his life now. So when he comes home, he's not a happy person. Right. Yeah. So I guess we're still on the same album that she made that won her the Grammy, right? And she's yeah. about to take that album on tour in mm-hmm. Europe at the moment that he gets out. And uh, and the big kind of final conflagration between them comes about because her manager, Rez, this guy who has been grooming her for international pop superstardom, decides that there's no way she can bring Jack on the tour with her. It would be a huge embarrassment and possibly sink her career. And uh, and she chooses to cancel that tour rather right. than have him come She wants along. him to come back and do like a duets tour. And he's like, are you kidding? That's a publicity nightmare. 
And, you know, she's she says, well, I'm going to cancel the tour if I can't bring him with me. And so as a way to sort of help move that process along, Rez decides to talk to Jackson. And that's a scene. I'm curious what you think about it, because I don't think there's an analogy really in any of the other Star is Born right. movies to this exactly. And it might be one of the very few moments that I think this movie overplays its hand. It's such, in general, an underplayed movie. But to the extent it has any villain, it's Rez in this right. scene, I was who essentially say. almost tells Jackson Maine to go and kill himself. Well, it's, you know, and, and I was going to say, I don't think the film needed a villain. I think Jackson can be his own worst enemy. You know, I think that would have been believable as well. I don't think it needs to sort of gild the lily and say, you know, of course, so what Rez says to him is something, you know, she's out and Rez comes over to the house and talks to Jackson alone and says, listen, you embarrassed her and nearly ruined her career and she cannot miss this European tour. She has to go and you cannot go with her and you cannot hold her back. And he says this heartbreaking thing where he's being served mineral water, of course, by the guy newly in recovery and and essentially says, we both know that this isn't going to last and soon you're going to push that aside for the real thing. Yeah. And, just and you're going to do this again. Such a lack of faith. You're going to do this again. And I think, you know, if he wasn't already in a really bad place, I don't know that that would have affected Jackson so much, but I think he realized he does have a problem and he's unable to stop. His tinnitus is getting worse. He's nearly deaf in one ear, basically. And he does a terrible thing. So, you know, this is the denouement of the movie. And because we're doing a spoiler special, I guess we will spoil this for you, but it's it breaks my heart to do it. Um, you know, they she decides to cancel her European tour after all, and she lies to him about it. She goes to him and says, uh, "I the label wants me to stay here and record my follow-up album. I, They don't want me to go, which is completely untrue. She decided she just wants to basically stay there and babysit Jackson, right? So then what happens? And, of course, he knows that isn't true when she's saying it to him mm-hmm. because of the prior conversation he's had with Rez. So that's the scene where if you've seen A Prior Star is Born, you think, oh, no, you know, this is like we're getting on the, the elevator to the basement now. Yeah. And uh, and she has one last show to play before the end of the tour for this album. And she invites is him that to come. the Hollywood yeah, Bowl, no, right? it's a, Yeah, I think it's at um, the Greek theater, maybe. Ah, okay. Somewhere big. But then and she asks him to come sing Shallow with her as a finale um, one last time, you know, that they're going to do a big number together to show the world he's back, right? Um, do you think when he agrees to do it that he already knows that he's going out that I night? I think so. I don't think he ever thought he was going to go to that stage. I think he just did it so she would leave. Um, but, you know, he says he'll be there, and she says, I'll send a car for you. And then this sequence happens where she's singing the concert and you know we see sort of a glimpse of how big her fame is because she has multiple costume changes and many people attending to her and you know she has assistants running around saying we can't find jackson and you'll have to go on without him and sing the last song without him um and she does because she's a professional right but she's wondering where he is and where he is is that he has decided to hang himself in his garage and the way that sequence is done i just want to break it down a little bit shot by shot because it's so yeah it's so gorgeously done and so tragic and and, yeah. and the, the establishment of the sort of geography of how he does it was the do- so skillful. The dog and the stake. Yes, it's already been established, okay, that the, the dog, when he's not around, because when he was in rehab, she says this happened, that when he's not around, the dog will sort of faithfully wait outside doors for him. And uh, and so that relationship is established. Also, the geography of this garage has been established by an amazing earlier scene where his brother 
played he's, by Sam Elliott. He kind of says goodbye to his brother. And he says goodbye to his brother. And yeah. there's this beautiful shot of his brother backing out of the driveway with tears in his eyes. But that, to me, was it also served the dual purpose. It served the purpose of advancing that relationship and kind of wrapping up their scenes together. Mm-hmm. But it also established like the uh, the geography of this garage that was going to matter later on with a red pickup truck in it. Yeah. And so what happens at the end there is that he gets in the red pickup truck, pulls out of the garage. And we think maybe he's going to the concert. Yeah. And But he takes a whole bunch of pills in the truck. Again, ellipsis, we don't really see him take it. We just sort of see him disappear in the truck with those pills. And uh, And by the time he gets out, He's completely messed up. And uh, again, we could have gone down a very maudlin road here where we watched bit by bit as he performed all the tasks right. necessary to We hang just yourself. know that he has a history of wanting to hang himself because he tried it once when he was 12. With a belt. And so all we need to know is that we sort of see him from the waist down taking off his belt. And his cowboy taking hat. Taking off his hat, which yeah. has been his his signature piece of headwear the whole movie. And uh, and that's the last we see of him, except for a very, very long shot, really disturbing shot um, of the garage from far away with Charlie, the loyal dog, lying outside, not knowing what's going on. And just through a small window, you see yeah. a body just and then very just red and turning. red and blue flashing lights. And that of the, of the cops arriving. But also, of course, that red and blue flashing light frame evokes a theater and somebody walking out into spotlights. I thought that yeah. that moment was a was just a beautiful moment of the convergence of her performance and his suicide. Yeah, I never thought of that. That's that was. Yeah. Wow. And so then we have this sort of coda. So that's where, you know, the movie ends tragically. But the coda and that and this exists in every version of A Star is Born is that she has a moment sort of Phoenix like where she takes off again after this tragedy. And I think what's nice about this version is we really get a sense of her devastation. There's another ellipses where after his death, we just see her lying around depressed and unable to move. And, you know, we see her friend holding her hand at one point and offering to stay and comfort her. But we just get a sense that she doesn't leave her house for a few months and is just completely undone by what's happened to her. But then there is a conversation with Sam Elliott, the brother, that changes things to some degree. Right. He comes over. She's in a moment of catharsis, smashed all of the uh, framed Jackson Maine posters on the wall in their house. And she's sitting in this pile of broken glass. And Sam Elliott gives a speech which is one of my favorite parts of the film, where he is talking about Jackson's theory of music, which is that he said, all music is just 12 notes on the octave. And the way you are an artist is how you interpret those same 12 notes. It's just about rearranging them in your own image. And he loved the way that Allie heard those notes. And I just thought that was a beautiful statement about art. Which is something that this movie is very, very concerned about. And I want to get into that when we talk just briefly at the end, I hope, about your profile of Lady Gaga. But but this movie, more than the the other versions, I think, it really wants to think through the problem, the paradox of performance, right? About what is it to be inauthentic or authentic as a a performer? What is it to, you know, um, to change and grow as a performer while keeping whatever it is about you? As she says at one point to the manager, I just want to keep the part of me that's talented, you know? And uh, and the movie is really very thoughtful without being particularly wordy. I think the thinking happens in acting and in performance and in the way the story unrolls rather than in people sitting around gabbing about it. Mm -hmm. But it's very thoughtful about performance. And and in terms of show, don't tell, you know, we get one last epic performance from her so after this you know last scene where she and sam elliott are grieving she goes out on stage at the shrine auditorium in a blue dress that evokes 
Judy Garland in almost every way. Her hair is done in a lot, uh, much the same way that Judy's was done. And the shrine is where Judy filmed her last scene. In and she's filmed from behind in a proscenium yeah. arch in the yeah. exact same Yeah, it's a very, I mean, the film in a lot of ways is a remake of the Streisand version and that it's about rock, it's a rock opera. But I, in this last scene, it's very much echoing the Garland version. And she sings this song that we learn Jackson had written as his last love song and had played for her shortly before he killed himself. And she decides that she's going to sing it. And what I think is interesting about this moment is that in all the previous versions, it's kind of a reaffirmation of the union. In all the previous versions, the big moment comes when the actress says, I am Mrs. Norman Maine. She, she she's assumed up, his identity. Yes. In some and way. sort of uh, attributes and, and, Gaga does that too. She says, I'm Allie Maine, but it's not the same. It's like she's standing on her own two feet, but she's ready to pay homage to this person who loved her and supported her and believed in her, but not necessarily that she owes her entire career to or life to or creative vision to, which I think is sort of a, a sort of equal note to leave it on. And then she, of course, sings this Bravura song. She sings it absolutely perfectly. And once mm-hmm. again, how it avoids bathos, I have no idea. You think it would? It's a ballad called I'll Never Love Again. And the the lyrics are a little cheesy. And, yet, and a single tear rolls down her face. Oh, my God. The, the film ends with her just looking at the spotlights while a single giant elephant tear rolls down her face. But somehow it avoids bathos. Like you said, it just it's not melodrama. It's just pure feeling. And I broke down the first time I saw it and it felt so earned. My tears felt really earned. Yeah, I think I, I, well, I think I wrote you this at the time. I think yeah. I wept four times seeing it and cried all through the credits with this very particular motive for the crying that wasn't yeah. that wasn't the tragedy of the story that had happened. It was more like appreciation that something so good could be created and that people had put so much care into making it and every so much part, better everyone, than everyone, you know, be. Bradley is is great at, as a director and an actor. Gaga does this part to the hilt. The music is beautiful. The lighting is beautiful. The cinematography. The costumes are beautiful. And it was just one of those things where you're really grateful for movie making. Yeah, exactly. No, I felt I walked out feeling like I had this phrase in my mind, like, it's so great to be properly walloped by a movie. I was just walloped by that movie in that big Hollywood way. Even when yes. the title appears at the beginning, you know, in those giant The red giant letters. George Cukor letters. He, yeah, he but, reused the titles. Right. Yeah. It's the same title font or very close to it. And uh, and the way they sort of slowly appear, there's something kind of uh, magnificent about that beginning that you just know you're going to be ravished. And maybe it just set me up and, and I fell for it, but I did feel ravished. Well, it felt like a big studio film, but in the way that you want that to feel, like they use their resources to the max, making this a big show for you. Right. Okay. Well, on that yeah. note, because you just sure. went to Lady Gaga's house in one of the them. Hollywood Hills. She, yes, one of her many. And uh, and you've written about it for the New York Times Magazine. I yeah. hope people will read that. Um, it's a great glimpse into an absolutely nutty celebrity scale life. But I just wanted to hear, because she does seem to be someone who immediately mm-hmm. opens up about performance and how she yeah. feels about it and what it means to her, just um, how meeting her and speaking to her about the movie kind of enriched your experience of this, these questions of performance it's trying to answer. Well, of course it enriched. The, I saw this movie for the second time after I had spoken to her, and I saw so many things that I didn't see the first time, especially, a, like you said, about her performativity and her willingness to give herself over to the role. But, you know, Gaga 
always wanted to be an actress. She told me that. she That was her first desire. She would watch uh, Wizard of Oz on repeat and say she wanted to be exactly like Judy Garland. And she studied the Stanislavski method as a teenager. And she went to acting school. And she really, really wanted to act. And she told me she didn't audition well. And so music was kind of a backup plan, if you can believe it or not, for Lady Gaga. And this is a return to a thing she's always loved, but that she's always had in her, that she's always been able to do. I mean, Gaga, the character, has been in a way, an acting exercise, though she did tell me that she doesn't like the word acting because it implies faking it and everything she's done feels really authentic to her even when she's playing a character, which I think was the big idea that I had after talking to her was that her chimerical nature, her shape-shifting, her sense of always playing and always inhabiting a new self is sort of for a postmodern digitally adult society a very sane way to live and this is just another self she's inhabiting i think ali has stuck with her but it's another she's playing again you know she's having a lot of fun with it i think she threw herself into it and took it deeply seriously but i also think she knows you know it's another element of masquerade for her Right, as when she did Joanne, the very stripped-down album yeah. that was acoustic and was sort of, in a way, the naked face, Lady Gaga. Yeah, I mean, we're in it a wasn't, period It wasn't of, really the, the, right. the most innermost core of her character well, as a performer. Well, you know, I think Gaga is a, an artist who thinks a lot about the creation of fame and what it means to be a celebrity. I mean, her career is commentary and you know, all in addition to being just pure artistic output. And I think that's what makes her so interesting. And I think being in A Star is Born, I think, was an incredibly interesting choice for her because she is a remixer of culture. She loves to pull from the past. She loves to think about it. She loves to reference it. Um, And, you know, if she was going to do her first big leading role in a studio movie, I don't think she would have wanted to do something where she originated the part completely and didn't walk into a lineage. I think she wanted to be part of this lineage. She wanted to be part of a lineage that includes Janet Gaynor and Judy Garland and Barbara Streisand and now her. And there's something about that that I think gives her more power. She draws strength from that sort of accrual over yeah. time. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's what I that's what meeting her bore out. But also she was just really um, fun to talk to. And she sang Shallow to me in an echo chamber. And it was uh, I cried. <laughs> Her voice is overwhelming. Like if she sings to you a cappella, it's enough to just like break glass and make your your face start, your contacts pop out, you know? I mean, in essence, it's occurring to me you had the experience that Bradley Cooper's character has on the on the divider in the parking lot. I know, and I'd just seen the movie the day before, and I felt like, thank goodness I was prepared for this because if she had sang it to me and I'd never heard it in the, f- the film, I would have probably passed out. <laughs> So I was glad that I had been prepared, but even then it was overwhelming. And it, and I think, you know, Bradley decided to cast her because he heard her sing at a benefit. He heard her sing La Vie en Rose, which is one of the reasons that it ends up in the film. And there is something about seeing her perform live that is pretty out of this world. And I can't imagine not wanting to cast her after seeing uh, her perform right in front of you. But she's even better in this movie than you might expect. I really, she really blew me away. I mean, you said that you were sorry that Clint Eastwood and Beyonce never got to make their version, and yeah. maybe that would have been a great movie. But insofar as it would have probably kept this movie from getting made, I'm glad that that didn't happen. I'd still love to see a Beyonce star is born, but you know, I think the thing about it is she belongs in that pantheon because I think, as I wrote in the piece, this movie always stars a very famous level of woman. You know, it's never once starred a person who wasn't already a star. 
going into it. It's never starred an unknown. It's never even starred someone who's kind of a B-list actress. Janet Gaynor, you may not remember her now, but she was the first woman to win an Oscar for acting, and she was a phenomenally successful silent film star. And then, of course, Judy and Barbara were galactically famous when they were they were at the height of their game, too, when these, well, Judy was trying to make a comeback, but, you know, very well known. And I think Gaga is the same and Beyonce would fit right into that lineage, too. So I think as long as we're already casting super famous people, she would be (laughs) she'd be in my dream cast for another remake. And I think it's going to get remade again. I mean, if we've learned anything about A Star It's Born, it's that it's it's, you know, one of these stories that will be rattling around Hollywood for as long as Hollywood exists. Oh, yeah. It's ever self-regenerating. But I I do think that this version is going to stand for for a while as one of the best versions of it yet, which given that I'm someone who holds the Judy Garland version in such deep and high esteem that it's probably one of my 10 favorite movies. Even with the cuts. really saying a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those movies that you love. It, you love it with its imperfections, you yeah, know, with all of its kind of longers and. Well, I think every version of the film brings a little something to the story. You know, you have that first version which lays the groundwork, the Judy version which is so vulnerable and full of that beautiful haunting music, and the Streisand version, which I think brings a level of confidence and and self-possessedness to this role. You know, Esther Hoffman in her version is like completely confident and almost overbearing. And I think this new version takes all of those and wraps them up into a story that has so much more context. I mean, we get real character development in this new version, which I love. Makes you really care. Uh, all right. I think we've, we've praised The Star Wars Born Enough. <laughs> yeah, now, sorry now we the, gushed. Now the haters have to write in and, and tell us how completely wrong we are. I mean, this movie is being too rapturously received by most critics not to be due for some kind of backlash but you know that we can be sure that's in the works given that oscar season is just beginning i just want to take a bet on who's going to be the first person to run a a star is boring review (laughs) title it's they'd be wrong low-hanging fruit headline uh all right well rachel thank you so much for thank you for having share your star is born history and please come back and spoil with me again soon we'll do thanks our producer today was danielle hewitt our production assistant was cameron drews for Rachel Syme, I'm Dana Stevens with the Slate Spoiler Special. We'll talk to you soon. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.